Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and today we're bringing you a special bonus episode of Our Shelves, my guest for which is Marilyn Robinson, the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Women's Prize for Fiction. She's also twice been nominated for the International Booker Prize, and in 2013 was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama. Marilyn's the author of various volumes of nonfiction and five novels, the first of which, Housekeeping, was published in 1980, followed 24 years later by Gilead. Jack, the fourth volume of her Gilead Quartet, has just been published as a Virago paperback. Welcome to our shelves, Marilyn. It's such a huge pleasure and a privilege to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much for finding the time to join us. Oh, thank you. Well, as I just said, Jack is the uh, fourth volume in the series of novels, the earlier books uh, being Gilead, Home and Lila. And you've been working on these for the better part of the past two decades. Um, And they can each be read in their own right, uh, but they also very much have a kind of symbiotic relationship between them. They tell the larger story of these two very closely entwined families in rural Iowa in the early to mid 20th century. Um, And I'm interested to know how you yourself conceive of their relationship to one another. I've read elsewhere that you've described them as one enormous novel. Is that how you think of them? Not really. I think of them... I mean, if I were to write that enormous novel, I would have many many more books. (laughs) But I think of them as being in a sort of gravitational relationship, sort of, uh, you know, uh, like a binary system of stars or something like that, only there's simply more elements. I like to think of them as extremely relevant to one another, but not at all dependent on one another. Mm. I don't, I can't, it, it might be my own, deficiency but I can't think of any other set of books that operates on quite the same principle you know no I was wondering that I was trying to come up with other examples myself and I couldn't think of any that worked like this well it's been very interesting for me when I began writing you know the next book after Gilead I I was conscious of not wanting to just cannibalize the earlier book you know Mm. Uh, and uh it put it was it constrained me because obviously certain things had to happen, certain things had to be true. But at the same time it was also a challenge to make it true in a in a in a very distinctively other way, you know. Hmm. And can I ask you about that decision then um, to to stick with this story? I mean, I think I've read elsewhere that you describe yourself as feeling bereaved almost when you have to leave a character behind. And so was it that sort of sense of loss and, and grief almost that made you want to go back to this world? Or was it that there was a particular, presumably there were particular characters that you thought, I want to go on and expand their story, their minor characters in the first book, and then you bring them to a fuller life in the second? I do always feel bereaved after I finish a novel. I always uh, base my novels around one thinking, speaking voice, and uh, so that I I become very immersed in one character. Mm. Um, and you know, a feeling. I mean, you've you've actually sort of, in a certain sense, lived with a character for two years, three years. You know, um, 
And so when they're gone, they leave a, a very definite absence, you know. Um, aside from that, when you write a book, I mean, I, I have written this book, these books, with the idea of trying to, to address the problem of historical amnesia that afflicts many, probably all human societies, but certainly uh, the subject there is the fact that the early settlement whose ancestors, you know, created the world of Gilead uh, were very passionate abolitionists. Mm. And as a consequence of the way they thought about that problem, they thought about many others. And so they created, uh, you know, universities that were uh, gender integrated, you know, and they created, uh, you know, seminary that ordained women in 1853, you know, and all that sort of thing. They were very, very advanced in many ways. And uh, it's this is in the 1830s and 40s and early 50s. And so before the Civil War, all of these things were beginning to appear out in the radical Middle West, you know, towns that had black sheriffs and all, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow or other, all that has been swept away uh, to the point where there's very, very diminished memory of any of it. At places like Iowa, I was really interested when I first went there from New England because I would say, what is the history of this place? And people would say it has no history. When in fact, it's had an extremely valuable history if it simply understood what it was, you know? Yeah. Why is that, that it's been sort of swept away? Have you ever got to the bottom of that? I have not gotten to the bottom (laughs) of it. I think that, you know, something happened. Uh, I mean, Reconstruction, the the attempt of the North to sort of impose a new social order on the South was also enlightened in many ways, you know? Mm. Um, And it was swept aside also. uh, And the period that followed it, which, you know, is called Jim Crow, was a a terrible step backward, a, a virtual reinstitution of many of the aspects of slavery. It was a, a terrible step backward. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, somehow or other, there was a very successful myth launched about the gallantry of the South, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. And, and it's taken this long for people to sort of step back and look at it and say, that doesn't seem terribly gallant to me, you know. Uh, the fact of, of of wanting to use American human beings as industrial property and so on. It's just mm. a, a total outrage. And that's all the war was ever about, whether they could do that and whether they could expand it. Um, and, you know, I mean, people were courageous on both sides. People in wars are courageous on both sides. Uh, but that doesn't certainly uh, change the character of, of what was being defended on the part of the South. And is the amnesia that you're sort of talking about, that's um, this sort of historical amnesia, is that reflected in the way that the characters in Gilead, because you've got um, John Ames, the reverend who is writing this sort of story of his, his family history for his young son who, who might not grow up to, um, who John Ames might die before the son grows up. And obviously he tells a story about his grandfather who was a great abolitionist. And then, the, but the sort of... The, after that in the family, it becomes a sort of point that is not talked about anymore, right? None of the other sort of his descendants don't have that fiery, um, you know, kind of good uh, good cause in them, do they? And, it, and the, the town itself used to have a black church, but it no longer has any, there's no black community there any longer. They've long since left. The church has fallen into dis- disrepair. Um, so is that the sort of amnesia you're reflecting in the novel itself? Yes, certainly. Um, and, you know, the People that, you know, I mean, it's amazing that people who considered the enslavement of, what, 10% of the American population to be uh, a major issue, <laughs> something to be taken in hand, uh, they were considered to be uh, radical. And they, that, I mean, radical in a negative sense, you know, and that view of them persisted and, and has persisted into recent recent history. Um the the grandfather who's actually modeled on a historical figure of a minister named John Todd, mm. uh, 
who who was a big supporter of John Brown and so on. Uh, he, you know, John Brown is considered to have been a kind of madman, and the people that supported him were either remembered as dangerous eccentrics or they've forgotten, you know. And and uh, it's, it's very strange to me how this has happened. Uh, and that, frankly, my assumption is, I mean, there are many instances of historical amnesia, mm. and I'm I'm aware that there are tendencies in Europe now in England to to recognize what they had overlooked in terms of their own history involving slavery. And um, when forgetfulness of that importance can happen once it can happen any number of times, it gives you a terrible sense of what's possible, what you might be carried along with without ever having any idea that there's something bizarre going on at a sort of the scale of the tectonics of history. Hmm. So was that how, when you sort of sat down to first write Gilead, did you have all these ideas in your head or did they grow out of, does, does character come first and then you realise the sort of world around that character and, and where their position is in it? Or do you start with a sense that you want to address this sort of historical, um, bla- you know, kind of blind spot? Well, you know, in the first instance, I was feeling very depressed and I wanted to find I'm very, I always think about things in historical terms, it's just, you know, how I am. But I wanted to find instances in history where it was clear to me that people had understood a contemporary situation and acted appropriately in the moment of this of the problem, you know. And so I came up with, of course, Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the two theologians who, who opposed Hitler, organized mm-hmm. against him and so on. And uh, then the others were American abolitionists that I had come across from from reading old books on other subjects, you know. And um, so I became very aware of, of the culture and the, the vision uh, that this very important movement mm. shared. And... Uh, but the I started, I mean, I was just studying that because I was thinking we have had many better options that we've chosen against, you know. But um, I wasn't thinking of writing a historical or, a, you know, a political sort of novel. I was just writing essays to sort of discipline my research into things and so on, you know. Hmm. And... Then I was just by myself in a hotel in on the coast of Massachusetts, and suddenly I had this novel in my mind. I had the character, the voice in my mind, and I was aware of placing him historically so that he would have a member, be old enough to remember actual abolitionist people, and then also mm-hmm. have lived long enough to see the beginnings of the civil rights movement. So when you first envisaged, when you were writing Gilead, did you have a sense of the sort of wider world around it? Or do you find that as you write each of the novels, the world sort of expands as you go? You know, it's interesting. The world expands. It does. But for, you know, for some reason, like the, the river, the West Nishnabotna, which is an actual river, is important to me. It, it is the river that surrounds Eden, you know. Um, and um, so the fact the fact of having a place to come back to that has a specific, you know, geography, geography is too general a word, um, but very strongly is a place with dunes and, you know, and, and uh, just, you know, crops and quiet and barns and so on the sense of that the, the Iowa-ness of it is a kind of an essential thing for me you didn't grow up in Iowa I'm you grew up in is it Idaho is that correct yes so mm-hmm. I'm interested in that world that you've created in the, the novel this very sort of specific place that you can kind of go back to is that a world that you know at all from your childhood or your adulthood or how does that kind of compare to to what you've seen in your life you know Idaho the place where I lived in Idaho 
very thinly populated, very mountainous, and uh, you know, and agricultural insofar as the terrain and the climate encourages mm. that sort of thing. Um, and I just grew up the way kids did then, of you know, wandering around and digging holes, and pretending I was doing something that mattered, and all that sort of thing, making up myths about stone formations and things like that, you know. Um, and I think that I, in that, I did feel that I knew a place intimately, just what it smelled like it and what the texture mm. of the soil and so on. Very different from Iowa, but I know how I would know Iowa if I had grown up there, you know. Yes, I love the way, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Um, so let's return to Jack for a minute. And I'm really interested because I was reading... Um, you know, before I was going to speak to you today, I was reading some sort of uh, interviews you've given in the past, and I came across one that you gave in 2008 after you'd written Home. Um, and I think the interviewer asked you at the time, you know, had you thought more about uh, maybe telling that story from Jack's point of view? And you said at the time that um, you were worried that you would lose Jack if you tried to get too close to him as a narrator, uh, because he's such a kind of alienated and complicated person. So something's clearly changed in the years since that what what has changed? What made you realise that you wanted to get to know, get closer to Jack, as it were? Well, very often, you know, I find that, in fact, my mind has been working on a problem. I... <laughs> I did not make a conscious attempt to conjure a voice for Jack, mm. but just at some point I felt as if I knew what his voice would be. Um, and it's knowing the voice that's what sustains me through the length of the novel. Mm. And is that because you, I mean, what's the relationship? Do you, because I feel like there's a sort of, you know, Jack and Lila are, they're very different, obviously, in many ways. Their lives have been very different, but they are both outsiders. They are people who've experienced a lot of loneliness and sort of solitude in their lives. Do you think that getting to know Lila more and understanding her life, did that give you a way into thinking about Jack? Or do you think of your characters as very separate? Or do you, do you sort of learn things about one of them through things that you learn about another? I think of Lila and Jack as quite different. You know, I mean, Jack is a He's an outsider and a loner, but he's a very uh, intensively acculturated. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, he, he has the whole vocabulary of civilization. He just does not have any firm grasp on life and civilization itself. You know, mm. um, and for Lila, I thought of her as someone who would be sort of original in the sense of 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 having. To create in her own mind uh, a way of understanding things, you know, um, and she's earnest about understanding things. Where mm. Jack is behind some sort of pane of glass, you know, uh, looking on, um, and of course, you know, inescapably involved in it, as we all are. But uh, but his his mind is not one that recruits itself to the purposes of normal life. And when you were writing, Jack, were you surprised by things that you uncovered about him in the process? Or having found him sort of harder to get to know maybe earlier or, or found him at a bit of a distance, did things then take you by surprise when you got closer to him? I am always, you know, my characters do surprise me. And and frankly, I take that as an assurance that I am writing a character. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. One of the, I mean, I've tried to, I put Jack on a kind of knife edge between, on the one hand, having a sort of pleasure in his, you know, in the fact that he is a stranger in the world, you know, mm -hmm. and then, and then at the same time, um, feeling all the pain and difficulty that that also involves, you know, and he has a mind that allows him to be very playful with things, with mm -hmm. even even what are painful experiences for him, you know. Um, but that degree of detachment, I I don't think of with Lila. She has her own. Way of being individuated, I think. Mm -hmm. Can I talk for a minute about um, 
I suppose two of your central characters, Reverend Ames and um, Reverend Borton, Jack's father. So these are men who've dedicated their whole lives to their faith. Um, but it, in so many ways, they're still struggling to understand, um, I think, both the ways of God, but also the ways of man and learning how to forgive and how to be forgiven. Um, and I'm very interested because you seem to write about questions surrounding faith and religion rather than the answers that it offers people. And I think a lot of people often think of religion, particularly if they don't have, I don't know, maybe if they do and if they don't have any experience of themselves, they think of it in terms of absolutes and and things that you will learn and, and what it will kind of give you or what it won't give you. But you seem to focus on this idea of the questions that it leads to, the things that it makes you think about. Um, and I think firstly, I wanted to know if A, that reflected your own experience of religion um, and then to ask whether, in that sense, do you think that you come to know your characters better as you write them? But do you also come to understand them any better? Because I feel that there's so much of so much of what's being done in these novels is the characters trying to understand one another, trying to understand themselves. And that seems so intrinsically linked with their faith. Um, that's probably quite a complicated question, but in two parts. Yeah. So what, what, you know, is this your understanding of faith and then how does this relate to what you're trying to do with the characters? Well, it's important actually. I, I, um, you know, I, I've often talked about in association with John Calvin, Hmm. (laughs) um, and, uh, early American, uh, literature, Melville and Dickinson and so on who I adore, um, are very, very uh, influenced by that tradition of thought. Mm. And one of the things that that tends to be true of it is that the idea of understanding something is to diminish it. That what you can, I mean, if you you understand God, for example, Mm. then you have made an, an idol out of your own imagination and you're not actually thinking about God who reserves every possibility under all circumstances, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, I I think that that's true. I think that, you know, that, that religious thought opens tremendous areas of, you know, sensitivity and, and, and comprehension if you don't make it dogmatic, if you make it... Uh, difficult in a way mm. if you understand that you are never in control of of the uh whatever is being addressed to you and of course in that tradition of thought you are continuously addressed by god through experience through perception um and so you are the the idea is always to be open to the possibility of a new conception based on what you are given in new experience, you know, or newly comprehended experience in a way, you know. Mm. Um, so, under, I mean, understanding is not exactly the word I want, but to to be able to acknowledge someone else's mystery, you know, um, is a sort of, it's not simply interesting or aesthetically pleasing, it's morally religiously uh an event you know and does that relate to what you were saying about being surprised by your characters that they are so you're are you not you're not necessarily searching to understand them but you are being surprised by what they show you about themselves and the world or am i reading too much into it no i think that's a fair statement yes Hmm. and i'm thinking about jack obviously uh in particular here and and in in home, by the end of home, we we learn that he's been absent for 20 years. And during that time, um, he's fallen in love with and had a son with a with a black woman, Della. Jack is white. Um, and he met Della in St. Louis. And because of the miscegenation laws of the period, so the relationship isn't just frowned upon, it is um, actually against the law. So, and I was kept thinking while I was reading it, that so much of the suffering that Jack sort of endures and inflicts on, on people um, throughout this, throughout these books is something that he seems to understand has been almost predetermined for him, that he can't escape it. 
Um, he describes himself as a destructive man in a world where everything can be ruined or broken. And is it, if there's nothing he can do about this. But then I kept being struck by the fact that it, that actually the thing that he really can't do anything about, the pain he really can't stop is, is the, the way that he and Della can't be together. They can't be happy together. Um, and this is completely out of his control. Everything else in his life, you could argue, is actually ultimately, you know, in his control. Um, but then there's almost a sense of him having invited some of this kind of terrible tumult into his life because of things that have happened before. And I wondered if I'm being too hard on him here or am I thinking in absolutes that sort of don't make sense? Is there a connection between the way that he's been and the way he sees his life? And then he sort of brings upon him the thing that he's been talking about all along almost. I think one of the most interesting things about human beings is the ones that have difficult consciences tend to be the ones who are actually the best people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, he is, you know, he, when he was a young man, he acted very badly and mm. it continues to be true that he feels this is a great source of guilt. Uh, but it's also true that his, he, what he's done by his, the abrasiveness of his youth is sensitize himself to his own impulse toward destruction, you know, mm. which is not necessarily more profound than anyone else's. It's simply that he has an extraordinarily you know, scrupulous conscience that that has the tendency to magnify the possibility of harm or the fact of harm. You know. Right. And he's keenly attuned to it in a different way. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's very, you know, some people actually respond to him as if he's a description of a psychopath or something like that. But, you know, as an adult in his own St. Louis era he hasn't done anything particularly objectionable no. he just uh you know he doesn't fit into a profit oriented world or a you know one that accepts the sort of conventional disciplines of of life but he seems to sort of i don't know maybe it's just the historical context of the time but he seems so willing to accept the problems that are going to come along with his and Della's relationship. And I think, I guess there's no way around that. That is the reality. But, but he also comes, he returns to his family home to sort of sound it out, to see if he and Della could possibly be happy there, right? Because Iowa, am I right in thinking it was only one of the two states that didn't have miscegenation laws at right. this time? Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's, there is the possibility of some kind of other life for him, perhaps, but he ultimately turns away from that. And there's something, I don't know, there's something so heartbreaking about that, that he, but I, I think I had the sense over, I have the overwhelming sense that he doesn't believe that he deserves the happiness in a, in a way. Yes, there is that, that side of his nature, you know, sort of, a, he's almost monkish, you know, in his, yes, you know, but at the same time, uh, if Iowa had remembered its history, had re retained a sense of self that was based on the, you know, the really glorious impulses that were active in its founding, mm. it would be able to come there with his family and live with his family, you know. But his father is as, uh, uh, you know, I mean, just as a matter of historical fact, there were people who by all conventional definitions of goodness were good people who nevertheless supported or overlooked egregious abuses and you know and uh you know he he doesn't know where his father is mm. you know he would not have his father would never have said anything that identified him as you know sort of racist or something at the same time that he also never said anything that would would exclude him from the possibility of that kind of thinking and and since he's a you know on the brink of death his father you mm. know the last thing in the world jack wants to do is push him over into you know his final mortality our shells be back in just a moment Welcome back. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. To our shelves, I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Marilyn Robertson about her most recent novel, Jack. Marilyn, could we talk a little bit about loneliness and solitude? Um, loneliness in particular, I think, has become something it's become such a topic of interest in recent years like a lot of people are writing about it both in fiction and non-fiction but it also seems to have been pathologized to quite a kind of you know extreme degree people are being warned over against this sort of epidemic of loneliness and um that's taking a huge toll on people's mental health apparently um and i just kept thinking about this while i was rereading these books because loneliness runs through all the gilead books and it's in your first novel housekeeping it's so important to what you're doing but you seem to present it as such a kind of ordinary part of life like it it brings pain but it's something that you know happens to people and it's also something that brings you don't you don't present it as something that we should be fearful of i don't think um and when I think of loneliness in your novels, even though there's a kind of degree of pain attached to it, I think of something that is ultimately quite peaceful and can be very rewarding in a sort of in a, in a deeply kind of personal way. Um, and I'd love to know a little bit about what loneliness means to you and, and sort of why maybe you think other people are scared of it, but you don't seem to be in the same way. Well, you know, I have... Um, you know, I grew up in a culture where, I mean, speaking here of, of Idaho, you know, mm. where, where there was a conception of individualism that had to do with a really remarkable tolerance for loneliness, I think. Um, people, the people who inhabited the place in, at first, you know, they weren't looking for company, you know. Mm. Um, and, uh, I it, I was always sort of brought up with the idea that the capacity for loneliness was privilege, right? And that there was such a thing as actually enjoying yourself, you know, that you know that your awareness of your perceptions, your awareness of of, of your memory, all these kinds of things, the enhancement that you can create for yourself by reading and so on. These were the privileges of solitude, you know. And I, I think simply being able to think of it in those terms pulls the sting in a way for many people. I, frankly, I, my brother is exactly the same, so I have some way of confirming my <laughs> my view of things. But, you know, if you, I mean, I don't know, I could not say what it is like to actually feel as if my relationship with anybody was something that uh, extinguished the experience of loneliness for me. You know, I mean, I don't know what the other thing is, <laughs> but I'm perfectly content not to know. I don't know if other people know either. They just don't want to admit. <laughs> it almost seems like, I don't, it feels almost like a, such a taboo thing to say that loneliness is a privilege or solitude is a privilege because there's such a, a kind of chorus of people scared about it it's such a yeah. it's such a it's such a fearful thing to people and do you think that I mean I don't know if you're the right person to ask or, or I don't know who is the right person to ask about this but do you think is there something about the modern world that maybe makes us much more fearful of our own 
of just being you know alone with our own thoughts alone with our own presence and, and not having sort of distractions or th things from other sources well we do do a great deal to distract ourselves i think there's nothing comparable in human history <laughs> <laughs> and that might be part of the problem i mean in the sense that you can create the illusion of being accompanied and so on you know the friends that you make and you know these art pieces of technology and so on. but i think that there's a you know i don't know what it is but it's as if nothing is worth writing about unless it's a source of fear or worry or you know what i mean mm. you can you, i mean it's theoretically possible to notice an attribute of human nature about whom one could say good things. <laughs> Aren't we glad to be part of this species? You know, look how clever we are and so on. But it's never that. You know, uh, there's something about anxiety that has cells. Uh, and I think that anxiety itself, or the feeling that, you, <laughs> that you're sort of obliged, uh, if you're a person, a reflective person, to to identify these, these anxieties in yourself and join the chorus, you know, I, I don't, I just, I don't feel that that's good for us. Uh, it's, well, it's, it's just, you know, you look back a little way and there are other pathologies, you know, that come and go and have this sort of form of crazes. Are you, um, would you describe yourself as someone who enjoys your own solitude? Is that very important to you? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, it, everything about my life that I enjoy seems to have some basis in solitude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'm missing a lot and all that sort of thing. But um, no, I don't feel that. Um, I mean, I have children and grandchildren and they, hmm. you know, visit and we have, a, I think, a very good family life and so on. But uh, the, th the thread that is continuous throughout my whole life from my earliest memories of childhood is uh, the feeling that I could be alone and that I could enjoy it. I think that's incredibly, um, that feels like a very powerful thing to say, I think, because I, I, partly because I think people are quite scared of it. They don't, they're not sure what to do with themselves. I mean, the pandemic has shown that, I think, in the last year, that people have found it incredibly hard to be without other people around. They found that they haven't got resources to draw on that they might have needed. Um, and it seems like a lot of people could probably take a leaf out of your book and learn to enjoy <laughs> learn to enjoy their time by themselves, you know. Yeah. You know, I did I did have a, an English teacher when I was in high school who said give yourself a mind that you want to live with because you will spend the rest of your life with it, you know, and and um that was very, very good advice. I mean, uh, you have to have something to think about that is not a source of anxiety. Mm. Uh, you know, that you can go go back to, that you can, in effect, go to for peace and comfort, you know. And it can be any number of things, any number of things. Uh, but when people are dependent on other people moment to moment, in a sense, to generate... Uh, interest for them you know it's simply a dangerous loss of autonomy i think mm. everything that you're saying makes me think um i remember i once spoke to the british writer plenty lively and, and about her life as a as a writer and she told me that if she hadn't read history at university she would have been a very different writer she knows it because it informed the way that she thought about everything and the way that she conceived the world um and I'm curious to ask you what has formed you most as a writer? Um, and I guess I'm asking that sort of now at this precise point in our conversation, because up until having this chat with you, I might have I might have guessed that you would say something like your faith. Um, but it sounds like maybe solitude or this kind of would that be something that's been incredibly important to you as well? Do you think you have something that has formed you as a writer and has made you the writer you are today? Well, you know, I mean, it's hard to distinguish. One of the things that I think is, is characteristic of this sort of interest in solitude that I have is that um, it's very, very compatible with 
you know, they just stuck at him. Theology mm. with, you know, um, which is, you know, these lovely vast systems of understanding and so on that open beyond the world, you know. Yes. Those things have occurring together, I think, uh, very, very important for me. And then, uh, you know, I read widely whatever I can understand, of, you know, science and so on. Um, and I find that uh, the things configure themselves, you know, that one thing becomes richer because you have the background of another thing, you know, another, you know, theology and cosmology go very beautifully together and so on. History was very important, as as I was saying, you know, mm. I, I like to read things that are that are old. Perhaps old and obscure might be the ideal combination. <laughs> but what you find actually is that all kinds of things are sifted out of awareness. You know, that it's not just the, the big amnesias that I was talking about before. Hmm. And that you can actually get very new ideas in a way from reading some old book. Simply because the people who have, you know, been influenced by it uh, to the extent that they have, have chosen only certain ideas to be influenced by and others have just floated down the stream, you know. Mm. Um, and that's just an interesting sort of, I mean, there, there's the sort of human brilliance is very remarkable. And the, abil the inability of human culture to do justice to it is also very remarkable. So we're, you know, the, the the history that we're usually offered is pretty thin gruel, you know, but the actual thought life that has gone into other centuries and places gets very thinned down and, well, and is still there as a resource because of the good old printing press, you know. You talked a lot about nonfiction that you read. Um do you read much fiction and do you read much contemporary fiction or are you, do you sort of keep that at a distance um, and look elsewhere for your inspiration? I do actually look elsewhere. That's just an old habit. Mm. Uh, when I was teaching, of course, I was reading <laughs> the most contemporary fiction <laughs> there is. You know? um, and I enjoyed it. It was very, it was certainly interesting to me. But even at that time, I was also doing all this historical research and so on. Mm. But you don't find yourself sort of, are there, are there, I suppose, your contemporaries, do you find yourself rushing out to buy the latest book by X, Y, or Z? Or <laughs> I get the sense not. You prefer to, <laughs> you know what you want to read and it's it's different. Yes, that yeah. can be true. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about your writing process? I'd love to know how you sort of distill these great thoughts and what actually happens when you sit down to do you spend a lot of time planning your novels before you write them do you sit and write do you do a lot of revisions and editing how does it work well you know I either feel like writing fiction or I don't feel like writing fiction and it's nothing I can summon and uh no kind of I mean other people discipline themselves you know by I you know I write for three hours every morning no mm. matter what that sort of thing not true of me at all not true of me at all enviable I think you know, um, but when I try to make myself write, I don't write well. Okay. Um, and, you know, that is sort of like the destruction of all the education that you have accumulated about what to do and how to do it. Um, I write, I can write many, many hours at a time when I'm really working, you know. Mm. I don't revise. When I'm writing a novel, I have a sense of the arc of the novel, very general sense. I try to feel that the characters are actually creating a narrative. You know? Okay. That's what I do, I think, more than anything else, is try to create in myself the illusion that I'm not really in charge, you know? Mm. And, you know, I mean, it's all because my writing is so voice-dependent and the voice is not mine, you know? Mm. I mean, in, in the simplest sense. Yeah, it's hard, it's a little bit hard for me to function as a teacher or a mentor <laughs> because I don't have formulae. I can't say, I, you know, I mean, when I was teaching in Iowa, you know, there were a number of us on the faculty, you know, and yeah. we all 
teach by our own lights. There's no effort to uniformatize methods or anything. And, uh, you know, so I would be talking to students who sometimes had been told things that I would never have told them. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, that being true, they were being, in many cases, given advice that was useful to them. Mm. Um, I have, I think, a quite an eccentric life. People say, what is your process? And I think, wow, <laughs> I guess I'm supposed to have a process, you know. Um, <laughs> well, I must admit, if the more writers I sort of talk to and ask questions around about on this topic, you come you end up with as many answers as there are writers you've asked, right? <laughs> Everyone has a different process. Everyone has a sense of whether it is a process or not, whether it sort of comes more naturally. So it sounds like yours is very organic and you would never, is that, I suppose that also accounts for some of the um, sort of lengthier time periods between novels. Obviously you've been writing other things, you're writing nonfiction essays, um, giving lectures, doing other stuff, but it seems like you don't have a, you're certainly not churning out a novel every, you know, three years, like some people, right? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. sounds like it wouldn't be very good. You wouldn't write like that ever. Well, I'm, you know, who knows? I mean, if the temptation presented itself. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have minded being prolific, you know. I, I didn't resist it or anything like that. It just was not my fate. But, or has not been so far, who knows? There might be a flurry of activity. But in any case, um, I I feel sometimes that, at least in this culture, there's the assumption that novelists should write novels, you know, mm -hmm. and that that for them, just it's as if, no matter how celebrated they are, if they step into another area, people act as if they're, you know, treat them as if they were a child or something. What are you doing here, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I find it very effective, uh, you know, as a sort of put down <laughs> for what a novelist might say, you know. And, and I think this is absolutely absurd. And, and I, you know, one of the reasons that I left conventional academic life to the extent that I ever had a finger hold on it is because the idea of specializations is just terrible to me, you know. Right. And... Uh, I don't want to be specialized as a novelist or as a Shakespearean or as anything else. And do you approach your nonfiction in the same way? Do you let yourself be instructed by what takes your, what piques your interest at that point and, and then fo follow from that point um, when it comes to essay writing or the nonfiction work that you published? Yes, I, you know, I have a habit of mind. I don't know where it came from. Well, of course I don't. But in any case, I, you know, sometimes I hear something and I think that doesn't sound right to me. Hmm. It's missing in the logic of that, which is a crucial piece, you know. Um, and often it's something that I hear in an academic setting. Okay. And then I get um, invited to speak somewhere. And this, this has been in my mind. There has to be another this has to be thought of in another way. So my my essays are usually critical in that sense, you know. Mm. Um, and I get to work out, you know, issues of, you know, it's sort of like with your question about how do we look at solitude. Mm. You know, uh, sometimes we get locked into ways of thinking that are that are not fruitful. Uh, that need to be re-examined. And that's usually my impulse in writing, writing essays. And finally, I think one of the questions that I often ask um, the guests that have also come on this podcast before is for them to tell me about a book that's made them think about feminism in a different way. Uh, but what I'd like to um, ask you on this occasion is what feminism means to you or is meant to you at different points in your life. And is it something that plays any part in your identity as a writer? Well, you know, one of the, the thinking about housekeeping, hmm. I did grow up, my family was, I would have been the fourth generation of my family to live in Idaho, which is very unusual, very late being populated. 
And uh, there were lots of family stories about homesteading, you know. Yeah. Worrying about wolves and all that sort of. And the stories very often centered around women. Okay. Uh, There was a great grandmother of mine called Aunt Polly who just seemed to control the world as far as these stories (laughs) are concerned. And um, I was, you know, having moved away from there, being in college in the East and so on, I was so sick with this masculinization of Western settlement. Okay. And uh, I wanted to create a sense of of that world as being a world that was deeply felt and 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 created really by by women, you know, mm. not necessarily uh, you know people that went on to you know have enormous cattle ranches or something, but people who made life for each other in circumstances where there was very little support or you know, where, mm. where what they made and what they did were crucial uh, elements of many people's lives, you know. Um, and <laughs> I know Sylvia isn't, the, she's the negative example of all that, I know. But <laughs> nevertheless, uh, you know, that's true too, you know. And um, so anyway, I was quite conscious about making, a, you know, a West that was Deeply, uh, what is the word? Womanly. As Womanly, a, yes. Yeah. yeah, founded on founded on women making lives for themselves and lives for other women. That book is beautiful in the, the sort of exploration of of a female existence, right? A kind of very a very centralized female existence of women looking after each other in the family and not looking after each other, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Marilyn, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. That's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Marilyn Robinson. Tune in next season for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.